We've been asking ourselves, who's my one? And how have things gone for you? I, I hope these past few weeks have been encouragement for you as you have prayed, committed to pray daily for that one, and as you've prayed to create a gospel conversation with that one. And if you've been praying and waiting for the moment to have a gospel conversation with him, let me give you a final push that now is the time. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait for a door to be opened because the door has already been opened to you. And part of our work over these past few weeks has been to pump you full of encouragement and boldness to be able to open your mouth with the person you care deeply about, the person that the Lord has put on your heart to tell them of the great love of Jesus Christ for them. And so if you remember, we started in Luke chapter 15 uh, to show us the picture that our God is fundamentally a seeker of the lost. Lost coins, lost sheep, he's the seeker, we're the people who are found. And then in Acts chapter 1, you have God the Holy Spirit power in you for the purpose of testifying of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of Acts chapter 8, God is the sovereign one who puts gospel speakers and gospel receivers together. He orchestrates these conversations. All the moving parts belong to him. He's the prime mover. He puts it in place so that these things can happen according to his beautiful will. Then in Acts chapter 17, we proclaim a strange message compared to the message of the world, but it is full of effectiveness to save people from their sin, give them new life in Jesus Christ. Week after week, we've worked to encourage you, to build your strength, to build your boldness. And my encouragement to you is now is the time. Pick up the phone, plan the coffee date, get your pumpkin spice latte. Do they serve that at Dunkin's? I don't know for sure. But get with your person and open your mouth and engage them in a conversation about Jesus Christ. They are worth the gospel. They are this valuable for you to love them this much to give them Jesus Christ. Would you do that this week? This week, would you pick up the phone, set the appointment, get with the friend, tell them about Christ. Now, though this sermon series comes to a close today, uh, my hope is that this type of language does not stop. This was not meant to be just a little five-week blip on the radar, and then we move on to other things. Uh, Sharing our faith is fundamentally what we do as Christians. It is as basic as worship, as prayer, as studying God's Word, as being a part of a fellowship of believers. Sharing our faith is basic to who we are as Christians. It's not the, the task reserved for the super Christians or the really, really good people or the really, like the Navy SEAL type Christians. It is power given to us for this task for every single follower of Jesus Christ. I hope in the weeks and months to come, that we'll continue to encourage each other in our evangelism. That you'd show up here on a Sunday and you'd ask your friend, hey, how was your week? And then you'd say, hey, who's your one? Who are you praying for these days? Who are you sharing the gospel with these days? And if they say, I don't really have anyone, say, ha I got someone for you to pray for. Here you go. Here's their name. Pray with me for this person and uh, we're going to give Jesus to them together. So let's This needs to be part of our everyday conversation, our common vernacular, and our regular practice as we pray and as we walk with Jesus Christ. Now, uh, over the past few weeks, we have focused on evangelism issues that are a little more close to home. Today, we're going to pull back a bit 
uh, to look a little more down the road and consider an impact of evangelism that is inevitable, that is present, and that we must be prepared for. Persecution is a reality for every follower of Jesus Christ. And when persecution lands on the proclaiming church, it can have a disorienting effect. It can create chaos among us whenever hardship arises because of our allegiance to Christ. It seems weird. It seems odd that this would happen. I mean, shouldn't God protect us and keep us from these things? Shouldn't he keep us safe as we walk in obedience with him? But the faithful testimony of God's people has always been persecution rises against those who walk with Jesus Christ. That's the faithful testimony of the Christian church. It's been the faithful testimony of God's people all the way back to the Old Testament, in fact. So if we're going to be a church that proclaims the gospel, we have to be prepared to face persecution. Although these past few weeks we've looked a little closer to home, this is an issue that looks a little broader around us. I'm not sure uh, how many of us risk persecution for sharing the gospel with our one, but you might. There are some family dynamics, some social dynamics that might create a backlash as you open your mouth and you tell this person you care about, about Jesus Christ. Persecution can be a scary thought. But the early church didn't stumble when confronted with this challenge. In fact, the early church exploded in the face of the most awful suffering. And again, the steady testimony of God's church throughout Christian history has been of a bold people who withstand persecution and a gospel that spreads in the midst of it. In Acts chapter 8, we meet the first intense and really widespread persecution to hit the church of Jesus Christ. It's not the first instance of persecution in the book of Acts. It's not even the first uh, instance of persecution in the entire Bible. But it is unique in that it hits with a severe intensity and it is broad. It's widespread and it has a broad impact on the church of Jesus Christ. And here in Acts chapter 8, with our understanding that the church is, is very, it's very young, it's, it's infantile in its maturity, so to speak, you and I might think that such a thing as persecution would destroy this early movement of Jesus Christ, but it didn't. And why didn't it? That's what we want to understand this morning. Look, my purpose is to prepare you to endure persecution. I don't want us to pretend like it's not a reality today where we live. And I don't want us to pretend like it's not growing in intensity around us. For you and I to be faithful public witnesses of Jesus Christ, we have to be ready to endure And so the way I want to help equip you this morning to face persecution is by disarming it altogether. In Acts chapter 8, I want to show you three truths that disarm Christian persecution. If we take away the fear, we can operate in the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to proclaim the gospel no matter the cost to us. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 8. Starting in the middle of verse 1, the setting is this. uh, We're in the city of Jerusalem. A Christian man named Stephen has just been executed by stoning uh, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after his execution, 
things go haywire for the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, middle of verse 1. On that day, that's the day of Stephen's execution, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. It's a small passage with an atomic impact. And I want to show you here three truths that totally disarm persecution. The first truth is this. Christian persecution is the norm. If you and I are going to face this and endure it, we must understand that Christian persecution is not abnormal. It is indeed the norm for followers of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, we meet the word persecution. A severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. This is the second time the word is used in the book of Acts. The first time was in chapter 7 as Stephen is proclaiming Christ before the religious authorities He accuses them of wrongdoing, a historical wrongdoing. He says to them, all of your ancestors persecuted and murdered the prophets who came before us who testified of the coming righteous one. So Stephen identifies the ancestors of these religious leaders as persecutors of righteousness Stephen on that day suffers persecution at the hand of these people as well. And then that persecution blossoms to the surrounding community of Christians in Jerusalem. Now, a question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what exactly is persecution? Definition of terms is vitally important in this conversation. Uh, There's an organization called Open Doors, and they work to highlight the plight of the persecuted church around the world. And here's their definition of persecution. I think it's a, a good working one for us. Christian persecution is any hostility experienced from the world because of one's identification with Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be sure to mention persecution is not uniquely a Christian phenomenon. Any place where hostilities are suffered due to one's religious identity, that's where persecution lives. Uh, Muslims suffer persecution. Buddhists, Hindus, people in different pockets of the world of different faiths all suffer persecution of various kinds. Christian persecution is unique in that we are Uh, We experience hostility because of our identification with Jesus Christ. Uh, And so persecution may not be something that's on your radar as a regular phenomenon. It may not be something that you've really ever thought about very much. Um, But it's something that's been present since the very beginning of the church. In fact, Jesus helps us understand persecution himself in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. He says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. These hostilities mentioned in our definition, Jesus gives us four verbs to help us understand that. 
You're blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, they insult you, they slander your name because of the Son of Man. Persecutions of every kind are recorded in the New Testament. In fact, every New Testament document is written in the context of persecution. Every single one. The wave of persecution that started in the early church has continued to this day. Open Doors releases a report every year identifying the top 50 countries in which Christian persecution is most extreme. Those 50 countries alone represent a population of over 245 million Christians. Every day, 245 million Christians around the globe are in the crosshairs of intense persecution. Open Doors last year reported that over 3,000 believers were imprisoned because of their faith. They have over 1,800 churches and other Christian buildings that were attacked. And they also recorded over 4,300 Christians who were killed for their faith. In these countries, persecution can look like a lot of different things. It can be physical abuse, imprisonment, kidnappings, bribes, deportation, destruction of property, fines, torture, and murder. Persecution takes on many different hostilities. So then it raises the question for us, do we face persecution in America? And I can understand why someone would answer no to this question. You might say, we don't experience persecution, especially compared to other countries and what our brothers and sisters go through in other parts of the world. We're not holding this meeting in secret. There is no fear of repercussion for you attending church today. You will have your job tomorrow. You will own your property. You will not lose your freedom. There's no threat against us today. We meet openly, freely, and gladly. So someone might say, no, of course we don't suffer persecution. I would counter with this. If persecution is any hostility due to our beliefs, then we do in fact face persecution in America. Now we can say we don't suffer persecution as intensely or as frequently as Christians in other parts of the world, but still we do indeed face persecution. It takes on different forms here. It, it can be verbal abuse, it can be infringement on religious liberty, it can be social estrangements of many different kinds. It often comes by the way of name-calling. If you profess allegiance to Jesus Christ in different spheres, you might get called a bigot, homophobic, transphobic, sexist, or a hate monger. There's any number of slanders that might come your way. The words of Jesus Christ are true. This is what happens to his people when they follow him. Where do we see persecution taking place in our country? There's a lot of different places where we might point to. I would highlight uh, a couple of places in particular where I see uh, persecution today most intensely. That's in our public middle schools and high schools and in our universities. Uh, if you are raising a Christian teenager, you are putting your child in the crosshairs of persecution. Uh, for pastor Mike, our youth pastor, has said several times that uh, one of the, new, the greatest good in America today is safety. Tolerance and safety. Safety, especially when it comes to parenting, we want our kids to be safe. You cannot raise a Christian teenager who is safe, who is immune from persecution. The moment they identify 
as a follower of Jesus Christ, they will immediately suffer name-calling and slander and hardships in their schools. Uh, My own children in their middle schools and their high schools have had to defend their faith as followers of Jesus Christ, just merely identifying as a follower of Jesus Christ. They've had to defend themselves to students, faculty, and administrators alike. Not only that, they've had to educate students and administration about what religious liberty looks like in our public schools. Our public schools uh, do not get this right, by and large. So as a parent of a Christian teenager, just know this is what it means to have a student who walks with Jesus Christ, and it ought to inform the way you parent and the way you equip and what your dinnertime conversations look like. Your child is going to face intense hardship because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's inescapable. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote to Timothy. We studied it just a few weeks ago. He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I believe what Paul says. The, The testimony of our lives bears witness to this, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be imprisoned and everyone's going to be executed, but it does mean you will face hate and slander of many different kinds. Christian persecution is the norm. What happens in the book of Acts chapter 8 is not uncommon. It's not the first instance of persecution. Chapter 4, we see Paul and John getting arrested for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And it's not the last instance of persecution. The rest of the New Testament is filled with these instances. Over and over again, God's people suffer because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. So if we know that this is the norm, when persecution lands on our doorstep, our response is, of course. Look, if the prophets were persecuted and Jesus was most persecuted and the New Testament church was persecuted, so will we be. This is not a surprise. And it doesn't mean we're quiet about our identity with Christ. It doesn't mean we capitulate to cultural demands. It means we continue to press forward sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly, knowing that persecution is going to come. The fangs are taken out of it whenever we realize this has been the normal path for God's people for all time. We walk a sacred path when you and I endure persecution. What is it that disarms persecution? First of all, knowing that it's the norm. Second truth that disarms persecution is this. Christian persecution is within God's control. Christian persecution is within God's control. He is sovereign over it and within it. To be sure, persecution is a spiritual warfare. There is an enemy that wants to see the church silenced, that wants to see Christians suffer, that wants to see Christians walk away from their faith. For sure, there is an enemy involved in this, but our God is so powerful and so perfect that what the enemy would mean for our destruction, God will use to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. In chapter 8, verse 1, Luke gives us three important geographical markers. Geography is so important when we're reading through the book of Acts. He tells us the great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That's the first geographical marker. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So Judea is the region that the city of Jerusalem sits in. Samaria is the region to the north of uh, Judea. 
So these are the three markers, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now those places should sound familiar to you because we heard them long ago in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So if the disciples were told in chapter 1 that they would be witnesses of Christ in Judea and Samaria, and then persecution breaks out against them in Jerusalem that sends gospel speakers to Judea and Samaria, well, what does that tell us about persecution? It tells us that this suffering was appointed by God for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Even persecution is under the sovereignty of God. And this plays out many different times throughout the book of Acts. God puts his people in place to proclaim the gospel, and the result is sometimes persecution and suffering. Not always, but sometimes. In chapters 4, 5, 7, 9, 13, twice in 14, once in 16, and twice in 17. The gospel is proclaimed, and the response is persecution towards the speaker. God is the sovereign over the suffering of his church. Persecution is not a sign that God is losing control. It doesn't mean that Satan is winning. The New Testament record shows us time and again gospel victories that accompany persecutions. So we must not think that persecution is a sign of the church's demise, nor should we think that the absence of persecution is a sign of the church's success. It's a whole other conversation to be had about what a lack of persecution for the American church has done to the American church. We don't have some sick fascination with suffering, But there's hard questions to be had if our comfort has lulled us to sleep. So it seems counterintuitive to you and I that God would be sovereign over the persecution of the church. Our thinking is that he should keep us safe and secure from all alarm. However, if God allows persecution, if it's under his sovereign control, and if he is loving and compassionate, then we can know that God uses persecution for loving, good, perfect purposes. What's the good that comes from it? That's a whole other sermon or five on its own. Let me give you just a few quick little bullet points. Here's the good purposes that God might produce from our persecution. One, persecution deepens our faith and holiness. It shapes my holiness. Second, It makes other people bold in their faith. When others see you endure persecution, hold to Jesus Christ, even though it is costly to you in different ways, it emboldens them in their faith in Jesus Christ. It also opens others to the gospel. Time and again, we've heard stories from the mission field of how the suffering of Christians and the death of Christians has actually softened the hearts of those who were attacking them, that they would hear and receive the gospel and turn to Jesus Christ. Another good purpose of our suffering is that it spurs the church 
on to go and make disciples. The church of Jesus Christ has never wavered from going to risky places. But we go where the need is great, where, the, where Christ has not been named, and we go uh, following the example of those who have gone before us and suffered hardships. Another powerful purpose of our suffering is that our hope in Christ is made visible. When I suffer in the name of Jesus Christ, people see my hope on display. My hope is not in my comfort. My hope is not in a lack of affliction. My hope is in Jesus Christ who died in my place and rose again and holds an eternal treasure for me. So since persecution is within the sovereignty of God, we shouldn't panic or fear when the hard day comes our way. We can rejoice knowing that God is merciful and kind and loving and he takes care of his sheep. Again, the fangs of persecution are taken away when we realize God is not out of control in this moment. He is using it to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. I want you to listen to how one persecuted Chinese Christian explained his experience of persecution. He said, Dearly beloved brothers and sisters, in men's eyes our suffering was all an unfortunate occurrence, but for Christians it was like a rich banquet. This kind of lesson cannot be learned from books, and this sweetness is not usually tasted by men. This rich life does not exist in a comfortable environment. Where there is no cross, there is no crown. If spices are not refined to become oil, the fragrance of the perfume can't flow forth. And if grapes are not crushed in the vat, they will not become wine. Dear brethren, these saints who went down into the furnace, far from being harmed, have had their faces glorified and their spirits filled with power, with greater authority to preach the word in a far more abundant life. The Lord will have the final victory in their bodies and will put Satan to shame. In fact, Satan could find no way to make them renounce their faith, and they were released. Persecution is within God's sovereignty. So whether your name is smeared or your blood is spilled, God is accomplishing his good and perfect will for you and through you. One last way this passage disarms persecution is Christian persecution amplifies the gospel. Christian persecution is the norm, it's within God's control, and it amplifies the gospel. Look at verse 4 with me, and I want us to chew it slowly this morning. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. What's it mean to be scattered? It has to mean more than just temporarily leaving the city. They didn't just go to a suburb of Jerusalem, get a hotel room, and then come back in a few days when things calmed down. This scattering was a relocation. It's a new exile. It's a new diaspora. To be scattered is to be relocated. Your life is uprooted in an unprecedented way. This is not largely a transient culture, not the way ours is. You are born and you die on the same piece of land that your family has had for generations. This type of scattering was not common. And you're leaving for fear of your life. Saul is going from house to house, ravaging the church, imprisoning men and women. 
You don't have time to get a U-Haul, back it up to the front door, load it up, and have a teary goodbye with your friends, and then move on to the next town. It is grab what you can and flee out of Jerusalem or face death. Where were they scattered? They were scattered to the regions around Jerusalem, the city. So Judea and up to Samaria. And why were they scattered? They're scattered because they proclaim the gospel. They claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. And what activity do they continue to do in their scattering? Verse 4, they went on their way preaching the word. Preaching the gospel is what led to the scattering. And preaching the gospel is what carries them through the scattering. What the enemy of the church thought would silence the church had the opposite effect. Enemies of the church have always assumed that persecution will silence the witness of God's people, but that's never been the case. The history of the church has always been that the more violent the persecution, the louder the gospel voice becomes. Far from silencing the gospel, persecution amplifies it. And so the purposes of God are fulfilled as his people proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We have this great testimony of Philip who goes to Samaria, a place where no self-respecting Jewish man would go. They would rather walk around it than go through it. Kind of like an Oklahoman to the state of Texas or a New Englander to the rest of the country. They want nothing to do with it. (laughs) That's true. You know it's true. But the persecution sends Philip to a place that's not on his radar necessarily, but it's on God's radar. And God has people in that region as well. And so Philip goes and he reproduces the ministry of Jesus Christ. He does signs, these miracles, that that point to the believability of the message he proclaims casts out demons, and then with the power that's been on display, he's able to tell them the reason this happens, the reason this, this person is set free is because of Jesus Christ who died in your place for your sin and rose again from the dead. And if you believe in him, you give your life to him, you'll be forgiven of your sin once and for all. And people hear that message and they receive it. And I love verse eight. So there was great joy in that city. Don't miss the start and the finish of our passage. A great persecution broke out against the church. But there was great joy in the cities they went to. The gospel is amplified as a result of the suffering of God's people. Our suffering is far from arbitrary. There's always a purpose behind it. And just as uh, the, the persecution is intense and hard on God's people, so the results of that persecution are huge and incredible and amazing. I mean, just within the scope of this passage here, consider this. Persecution lands in verse 1, and by verse 8, we've got Samaritans rejoicing in the name of Jesus Christ. A little bit later, we've got a conversion, eh, maybe a bit of a sketchy one, but a conversion of a sorcerer. A little bit later in chapter 8, we've got the conversion of an Ethiopian man who had come to Jerusalem to worship. God brings Philip from Samaria down to this road out of Jerusalem to preach the gospel. We were there just a couple of weeks ago. And then you get to chapter 9, 
and Saul who held people's coats so they could throw rocks harder at Stephen's head. Saul who ravaged the church, going door to door imprisoning men and women. That Saul meets Jesus face to face in a roadside encounter. And he's forever changed by it. They do not underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it doesn't just survive persecution. It flourishes within it. When Christians suffer for the gospel, we show how truly valuable and utterly powerful it is. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, I'm I'm glad you've come on this morning. Because here's something you need to consider for yourself. You've got to wrestle with this truth, that God will ordain the persecution of his church in order for you to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it takes the suffering of people in this congregation for you to hear the gospel and say yes to Jesus Christ, God will permit that, and we will say yes. In in fact, we would just have to turn a blind eye to history to not recognize that we are here today because of lives given in the name of Jesus Christ. You have a Bible in your lap that did not come freely or easily or without much blood. The fact that it is printed in a language you can read and understand on your own was done so at the cost of human lives. There's so many things that shape who we are today, how we witness, how we, excuse me, how we worship together that was not done by some act in some government, but by the death of God's people who made it so that you and I could read the Word of God, and we could worship together, and we could even do so freely in this moment. So friend, understand how valuable you are to God. So many other world religions teach this, that you, you will prove your love for God or your worth to God by how much you take on suffering. That is not at all the Christian story. The Bible says, Your worth is proven by what God has given for you already. Jesus Christ is the persecuted one. God's own son, one and only unique son, who was given for your sins. He died for your sins so that you could know forgiveness and eternal life. The the persecuted one suffered your death so that you could know life everlasting. And in that God says, I love you. I value you. You're important. You don't have to beat yourself for me to love you more. I can't love you more than I have proven I do already. Friend, all you got to do is say yes to him today. Turn your life to Jesus Christ. Let the persecuted one bear your sufferings. Do what he came to do that you would be given eternal life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So here's what I've tried to do today. In too brief a time, I've tried to remove any fear we might have uh, out of pressing forward with the gospel. If if I were to take a guess on a test, what's the number one reason why people don't share their faith? I think fear is the reason above all else. I think fear is the reason. We're so creative at making excuses and letting fear drive our silence. But if we take that thing that might be most fearful, persecution, and we recognize how it has never stopped God's people, but in fact, it has amplified the gospel, 
then perhaps we find in ourselves more courage than we knew we had, more boldness than we knew we had, more power than we knew we had. It's the same power that Jesus gives us when we say yes to him. And so a right understanding of chapter 8, a right understanding of the weakness of persecution is for you and I to step out these doors with a story on our lips, people on our hearts, and give them Jesus Christ. Uh, A few hundred years ago, a young man named John Patton desired to go as a missionary to some islands in the South Pacific. They were known then as the New Hebrides Islands. And they were inhabited by cannibals. Uh, Patton knew this because the first two missionaries who set foot on these islands were clubbed to death and then eaten. But before he could leave his home in Scotland for these islands, an old man in his church tried to stop him from going. And this old man named Mr. Dixon, he rose and he said to John Patton, he said, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton answered him. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your body will soon be laid in the grave to be eaten by worms. If I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. So let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe the words of Jesus, who in Matthew 5, verse 10 said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father God, our fears are many, but your mercy is more. Your love is more. Your compassion is more. Your power is infinite. Father God, thank you for walking with us in all of our weakness. God, these last few weeks, um, We've been in this study striving to turn ourselves towards greater boldness and greater activity in sharing the gospel. Let that not wane after today. But let us see the power of the gospel every time we read your word, every time we pray, every time we worship, every time we gather with fellow believers. Let us see how important and how incredible the missionary mandate of the church is. Father, we recognize that on this very day there are brothers and sisters of ours, those who claim allegiance to Jesus Christ who will suffer because of that. They are Middle Eastern, they are Asian, they are, uh, they are in Africa, they are European, they are in every corner of this globe. Lord God, give us hearts that grieve for the persecuted church. Give us an awareness of their plight and their suffering. Lord, we pray for the endurance of their faith in the midst of suffering of every kind. And we know we can't be so glib as to assume that they'll just be okay. But Lord, as their faith is attacked and as their sufferings are intensely personal and as they mount, Lord, hold them firm in the word and let their witness be effective in proclaiming Christ and seeing others come to faith in you. Lord God, I pray for us that we would be sly as serpents, harmless as doves as we encounter persecutions of various kinds in our own culture. Let us not pursue it with some sort of sick fascination, but instead be willing to endure it 
not letting fear keep us silent. Lord, we pray for our teenagers that as they step into their schools and for our young men and women as they step onto their college campuses that they would do so equipped, ready to defend the faith, ready to stand firm in their faith no matter the social cost. Lord, help them in this endeavor and help us as parents and grandparents to equip them to represent Christ faithfully and fully wherever they go. And God, may it be said of South Shore Baptist Church that we're a church that's true to the gospel. Let that be seen in the way we speak, in the way we love, the way we endure everything that you have planned for us. Lord God, glorify your name in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.